I want, to, I want to have you turn to Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. Now, a few weeks ago, of course, before the holidays began, we, uh, we had uh, taken the first six verses of Jeremiah 12 and studied them. I'll kind of go quickly on a review about that. But suffice it to say that in general, the book of Jeremiah is a book of prophecy that is given from God to Jeremiah to give to a people that had strayed far away from God. And because they were not only uh, neglecting the truth and neglecting the person of God, neglecting the reforms of the good kings like Josiah, eventually God had to say to that nation, I'm going to have to judge you. I'm going to have to bring judgment down upon you. And that judgment is coming. But while that judgment is coming, I'm giving you every opportunity to turn your life back to me. Folks, that's today as well. We're living in a time when the second coming of Christ is so near. And, and people are saying, you know, well, right, I'm too busy for that. I don't need that. I, I, you know, I'll, maybe I'll go to church one of these days. Or maybe I'll open the Bible one of these days. The fact of the matter is, there are a lot of people who have heard the gospel, not responding to it. And eventually, you know, judgment is going to come. But God is giving every opportunity for people to listen. Jeremiah goes out and he begins to preach to the uh, people of Judah, the southern kingdom. And uh, already they had the northern kingdom to look at as an example. People who had fallen into, uh, uh, into captivity because of their sin. This is the very same sin, neglecting God. So here we are in Jeremiah chapter 12. Uh, another set of prophecies have come forth. Basically, against, again, the same thing. Against the people that were supposed to worship one God, but now they are worshiping idols and doing so, forsaking God. Therefore, God speaks about this forsaking from Himself toward them. Notice, if you will, in verse 7, and I'm going to read verses 7 to 13, and then we'll pray and get right into our study. In Jeremiah 12, verses 7 to 13, it says, I have forsaken my house. This is God speaking. Now this is after so many years of telling the people to come back to him. He says, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, I have, I have hated it. I want you to notice the strong language that God is using toward his people. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures are all around or against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field, bring them to devour. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. In other words, the whole land is empty and wasted and uninhabited, in other words. The plunders have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness. Oh, by the way, the whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. Didn't want to forget that. Important. The plunders have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat, but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest, 
because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, grant us, Lord, wisdom and understanding as we look to this passage of Scripture tonight. As it brings us back to our study in the book of Jeremiah, may we get caught up again and and focus once again on not only this prophecy as it affected the children of Judah, but as it is going to affect our day and time, and especially the church. Father, awaken us to your truths. Fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. I pray that we have open eyes and open ears and open hearts to receive your word. Father, you know every heart in this place and you know that every heart needs you and needs to understand you. So I pray, Father, that any, any distraction whatsoever will be taken away from anyone so that he can hear you, your word clearly tonight. And Lord, affect our minds because sometimes our minds can wander. Lord, we don't want to wander away from your truth tonight. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when last we were in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet had been dealing with a couple of conspiracies. All that we find in chapter 11. A couple of conspiracies are these. First of all, there was the hidden rebellion against God's covenant and Josiah's reforms. You can read about that in chapter 11, verses 9 through 17. So go back to chapter 11 later on tonight and kind of read that over. Again, the conspiracy was against God's covenant with the people. He is their God, there to be His people, there to be obedient to His Word. Well, the lesson to learn from that conspiracy is that unless the Word of God is obeyed and lived out practically in the lives of God's people, the Lord will not bless as He desires to do. Now understand this, the Lord will not bless as He desires to do. God desires to bless His people. That is something that we see throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. God desires to bless His people. And it's a good thing to have a God that wants to bless His people, and to be a recipient of God's blessings. And, and I don't say this lightly, and I don't say it as, as if some you know, people are saying today, you know, oh, if you want the blessings of God, then you need to do such and such, and then God will give you everything you want. No, I need the blessings of God to live this life in this world right, so that I can be a witness to Christ until the day of Christ when He comes again. And the blessings that we have, uh, the blessings that keep us hungry, uh, that, that keep us uh, fed from hunger and keep us covered and, and clothed and, and, and everything like that, that's just, that's, you know, that's just icing on the cake. That, that's how much God loves us. He, you know, he, doesn't la- he doesn't leave us without what we need. But the blessings of God are spiritual. And where we have our treasures, that's, that's another key thing that we have to keep remembering. That where your treasures are there, that's where your heart's going to be. So, the lesson then to learn is, is that unless the word of God is obeyed and lived out practically in the lives of God's people, the Lord will not bless as He desires to do. However, the people preferred now, back in chapter 11, the people preferred to break the covenant with God, and they began to worship false gods. What was the other covenant? Part of the covenant. I'm your God, you worship me. I'll bless you, I'll keep you, I'll watch over you. You worship me. But you do not worship other gods. Part of the Ten Commandments. 
Don't make any graven images. They broke every one of those laws. Secondly, there was another conspiracy. And the second conspiracy was against Jeremiah himself. You can read that in verses 18 through 23. So again, go back to chapter 11, kind of catch up in your reading here. But the sad thing about this particular conspiracy against Jeremiah is that the plot was devised by the men of his own hometown, Anathoth. The men of his own hometown plotted this conspiracy against him to kill him. But what's even sadder to think is that this town was made up of priests. I mean, because it was a town made up of priests. And these priests lacked discernment and chose to listen to false prophets. Therefore, they were ready to kill Jeremiah for preaching God's truth. And on top of all of that, Jeremiah was facing a crisis of conscience. That's where we began last time. In verse 1 where it says of chapter 12, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. In other words, when I present my case to you, Righteous are you, and yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Let, let, me, let, let me come down and talk to you about your judgments here, Lord. I mean, you're righteous and all, but there's something I've got I to gotta get off my chest. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Last time we talked about how many times we see that in Scripture. The psalmists, the prophets, sometimes wondered, why, Lord, do the wicked prosper? If you jump down to verse 4, it says, how long will the land mourn? And I mentioned these two particular verses, verse 1 and verse 4, because of the two questions that Jeremiah asks. Why and how long? How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. Folks, what Jeremiah is concerned about is his people. He's concerned about Judah. He's concerned about the Israelites. He's concerned about the Judites. He's concerned about all those who are called to God's covenant. But he's wondering, Lord, why are these things happening? Why is it that the wicked are prospering? So Jeremiah asked the Lord the two questions that are easy to ask but hard to answer. Why and how long? By the way, they're not hard for God to answer. They're hard for us to answer. Why and how long? But the Lord did answer him. And he answered him with two questions of his own. Look at verse 5. The Lord says to Jeremiah, If you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? If you've run with guys wearing Nikes, and you get tired, what about, guys, what about horses that run with you know, horseshoes, and run around the track, and are you know, ten times as big as you are, and, and, and more powerful than you? You understand the question? And then he asks the second question, And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the, in the floodplain of the Jordan? If in a place where you actually were having peace and you got weary by these things, how are you going to you know, handle having to live in swampland? So in effect, God is telling Jeremiah that things are only going to get worse. So he can either ask this question, he can either ask, how can I get out of this? 
Or he can ask, what can I get from this? Or what can I get out of this? You see, I believe those are two questions that we are faced with asking today. Either we can ask, how can I get out of this problem? Or we can ask, what can I get out of this problem? And he's moving Jeremiah to ask that second question. Because things are going to get worse. May I say to you that in 2009, things are going to get worse than in 2008. And please don't say, but brother, that's a negative confession. Don't tell me that. I will say this. It's a biblical confession. It is a biblical confession because as we look at the times, things are going to get worse before they get better. And the only way it's going to get better is when we see Christ come. And that is just the bottom line. You tell me if the world knows how to have peace in the Middle East. Everybody misses it. Everybody misses the point. Everybody misses the, the way. Honestly, I'm telling you right now, even our own leaders in our own country don't understand how to have peace in the Middle East. First of all, in this time and in these days in which we live, we cannot have peace until Jesus comes. And I'll say this, Israel desires peace. And you might say, but they're going out killing people. Yeah, well, that's because they're, if, if, if all of the Arab countries decided to finally get together, they would indeed be wiped out and thrown into this, the Mediterranean Sea. You compare the sizes of all the nations and all of their armies in comparison to the Israeli army today and the people in Israel and the numbers of people. There are hundreds of millions against just a few million. Do you understand the, the, the problem? Do you understand how we know that God's hand is upon this nation? Because he is getting ready to deal with them about who he is. Do you see what we're dealing with here? Israel will go to the extent of even succumbing to the peace initiatives of an antichrist. This is what the Bible teaches. They will go to the extent of succumbing to the peace initiatives of an antichrist just to have peace. And I tell you, for the most part, Israel is is well-intentioned. They're not out there to kill innocent people. They're not out there to kill citizens. They're hunting down the people who are trying to kill them. By the way, if they kill innocent civilians, you know, it's because Hamas hides behind them. Hezbollah will hide behind them because they're cowards. But yet they're the ones who keep shooting the bombs at schools. A kindergarten school was attacked in Sderot the other day. The good thing was there were no children in the school. Do you understand now? There's, with Islam, there's no peace. Islam's peace initiative, I mentioned this last week. Islam's peace initiative is to acknowledge Allah alone and Muhammad his, his, his messenger. That is their peace initiative for the whole world. And they hate Israel. And because we are Israel, one of Israel's few true allies, they hate us all the more because we're the biggest. So you understand the problem. There's no peace. 
There's no peace. So we have to understand that. What are we going to get out of all of the things that we're going to have to be dealing with in these last days? We better get serious about getting right with God. We better get serious about getting right with Jesus Christ. Today, right now, not tomorrow. I said this Sunday, Paul had only two days in his calendar, today and, and this day. That's it. So another lesson learned by Jeremiah and hopefully by us is that there is no growth without challenge. And we're going to have challenge. But there is no growth without challenge and there's no challenge without change. God wanted Jeremiah to grow and he wants us to grow as well. In some cases, we're going to have to change. I say in some, in all cases. All of us have something that we need to give back to God and say, Lord, this is hindering me from following you. This is keeping me from living the life that you've called me to live. And I need to give it back to you. I need to surrender it. And so we need to be ready to change. Let's get back into Jeremiah. From this point on and through the rest of this chapter, the Lord continues his pronouncement of judgment on the peoples of Judah. Notice in verses 7 through 9, he says, I have forsaken my house. Listen carefully to every phrase that Jesus, uh, that uh, Jesus, well, yeah, in a sense Jesus, but it's God, that God, Almighty God says to Judah. He says, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. By the way, the word heritage can also be inheritance. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul. Listen to that phrase. The dearly beloved of my soul, his own people. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore I have hated it. That's a strong statement to make about your dearly beloved of my soul. To hate what they've become. To hate what they are now. When all along he promised them, if you'll just obey me, I'll give you everything that you need. I will give you the desires of your heart. And then he says, my heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around her against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. We first see a picture of a forsaken house. The house meaning God's people. The Lord loved His house and His inheritance, which is His people. There's a couple of verses of Scripture I'll read here in just a moment that deal with the fact that a heritage or an inheritance is in fact the people. But the Lord loved his house and he loved his inheritance, but he was forced to abandon them and to execute judgment upon them. Why? Because they were rebellious and because they had abandoned God. They had forsaken God. They were neglecting God. And he's forced to abandon them and execute judgment upon them. Still, still, it must be noted how deep the love of God was and is. For his people. Because he called his people my heritage three times in three verses. Three times. And in verse 7 he also calls them the dearly beloved of my soul. Now listen to these, these verses. Uh, Deuteronomy 9.29 Yet there are your 
yet they are your people and your inheritance or heritage whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. He's talking about people. The children of Israel. And then if you jump all the way over to Joel chapter 2 verse 7. Listen to these words. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. The heritage are the people that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? But you see, they lost it because they turned to flesh. They turned to other gods. So to have to forsake and to judge his very own people had to truly break God's heart. And I mean that. I mean to say that. That it had to break God's heart to have to forsake and to judge his own people. But judgment had to come because the people had become like a ferocious roaring lion, it says. A lion in the, in the forest, as, it, as, it, as we read earlier there in verse 8 cries out against me. You see, they ignored and denied and they cursed God. They ignored, they denied, and they cursed God, rejecting His commandments and His holy word. And like that wild beast, they threatened and they slaughtered His prophets and other believers who took a stand for the Lord. Sometime tonight, read... Hebrews chapter 11. Sometime tonight, read that chapter. Not here, read it at home. (laughs) We're in Jeremiah right now. But sometime tonight, read that chapter. About all the people of faith. And especially those, those verses that deal with those whose lives were given up for the sake of the truth of God. The people who stood for the Lord. We're told that the people of God even became like a disgusting vulture, a speckled vulture, a devouring sin as a vulture devours corpses of animals. And as it is described as a speckled vulture, literally it just means that it was a different vulture so that the other birds of prey attacked them as well. Then we read on in verses 10 through 12, and it says, Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. And again, there's some sense that God is speaking about his people here as his vineyard, as his portion, and as uh, his pleasant portion that would become a desolate wilderness. Verse 11 says they have made it desolate. Notice how many times the word desolate comes up. They have made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunderers have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. Well, let's, let's face it, some of that is true even today because there's no peace in the land today. 
But, but aside from that, again, consider the number of times that the word desolate is used. And if we understand desolate to mean uninhabited and empty and wasteland, as it, as it were, what is it really talking about? God is talking not about the land in this. There were people there. But they had no heart. Notice it says that they have no heart. And we read that, of course, we read that a little, little bit earlier. But here's the thing. That, that, that idea that no heart is, is, is emptiness. Empty of the things of God. Empty of the truth of God. So this picture is, that is given, this, the next picture here is that of, a dis, of destructive, destructive shepherds and their flocks ruining the Lord's people. That's what we read there in verse 10. They had trodden the people down so that they had become as unproductive as, as a wilderness. Again, completely desolate, isolated, deserted, uninhabited, and bleak. And on top of that, even the people of Judah didn't express enough concern to do something about the situation because they failed to repent. If there is no heart, because no one takes it to heart, they fail to repent. God has given them every opportunity to repent, every opportunity to turn back to Him, every opportunity to reject the evil and the wicked and to come back to the good. But they fail to repent. Why? Because no one takes it to heart. And I would mark that verse of Scripture there where it says that no one takes it to heart. I I would actually mark that down because you see, and that's verse 11 by the way, I would mark that down because it's the challenge for us not to get to that place in our Christian walk where we're doing things pretty much on autopilot. And just doing things because we do them, because that's what we are. We're Christians, so I go to church. Yeah, but why do you go to church? Why do you come to church? Why why do you come here? Is it to worship the Almighty God? To give honor and glory to the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ? Come to receive the, the blessing of God's Holy Spirit as a church, as a body? worship, to encourage each other in fellowship, and then to be encouraged as you take God's word to go out into the world and to tell others about Jesus. You know, there has to be a reason, but all of that takes heart. All of that takes life. If we read anything about heart, it means, you know, we're talking about life here. But, but they had no heart. No one takes it to heart. You find yourself in a time of trouble, you got to take it to heart, folks. And you've got to go directly to Jesus Christ. You need to go directly to the power of the Holy Spirit, to the only one who can do what is necessary to get us where He wants us to be in the midst of our trials and our, tr- our struggles. So the Lord would bring destroyers on His people from the wilderness who would act as His sword, it says, and devour the people. And that was speaking of the Babylonians who were coming closer and closer and closer uh, to the destruction. 
The whole of the land would experience war. It's strange to see how far Israel has come. Because in the early days, think about this. In the early days when Gideon fought against the Midianites, when Gideon fought against the Midianites, he divided his minuscule army into three groups. So he already had a small army. And you think if you have a small army, you don't want to divide them up. But God has them divide them up into three parts. And in Judges 7, verse 20, it says, Then the three companies blew the trumpets, and they broke the pitchers. The little pitchers, which really were like lamps. But they broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. What were they saying? They were saying that Israel had been the sword of the Lord. The sword of the Lord and Gideon. They were the sword of the Lord. They were the ones called to bring judgment upon the Midianites. But now that honor had moved on to Babylon. From our text, we're told that for the sword of the Lord shall be bar from one end of the land to the other end of the land. That's going to be Babylon. Now Babylon is the sword of the Lord. And Babylon would fight against Israel as that sword. And because of the invasion, the harvest that the people of Judah would sow would turn out to be nothing but thorns. Look, look at verse 13. They have sown wheat, but reaped thorns. Now, when it says they have sown wheat, it's as if uh, that parable that Jesus taught of, of, of the, uh, the farmer going out and, and, and spreading seed on the soils. And you take a handful of the seed and you just you spread it out. So to sow, is to, to sow seed is to spread and scatter the seed. They have sown wheat. Now notice, they have sown something good. But they have reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do no profit. Can you imagine working, 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 and coming out with nothing? You labor and you labor and you labor, and at the end of the day, there's nothing to benefit you from that work. And then he says, but be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. You see, all their labors to bring something profitable to completion would come to nothing because the Lord in his anger would bring judgment on them. In reality, they would be reaping what they had sown. Listen, again, going all the way back to the law, all the way back to Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. Listen to what God says. But if you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, which by the way, everything that he's saying here to the people in Moses' time is applicable to the people in Jeremiah's time, if you do not obey me, do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, in other words, your soul hates my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, which the, Jew, uh, the people of Judah had done. Verse 16, I also will do this to you. Notice, I will even appoint terror over you. You know, I think I would stop there and look at that. I will even appoint terror over you. What is the war about today? It's about terror, isn't it? That's the biggest enemy we have today is terror. Isn't that interesting? 
God says, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemy shall eat it. Then you go to Deuteronomy 28, verse 38, and it says, You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. Again, prophetic for the people of Judah. And then you go to Hosea, chapter 8, verse 7, a, a verse that many people know. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The stock is no bud, it shall never produce meal. If it, shall, if it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. And we're not talking about little green men. The foreigners or the aliens, you know, the foreigners. But then Paul said this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. In the New Testament, Paul said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In other words, you need to leave the reaping unto God. His timing is more perfect than ours. I was even going to say, His timing is more better than ours. More better, really. Go back to school. His, his timing is perfect. So don't lose heart when you are sowing good seed. You know, back in the days of prohibition, a millionaire was attracted to bootlegging to add to his wealth. Well, needless to say, he was caught and he was sent to prison. A friend of his visited him in prison one day and and he found the the prisoner sitting cross-legged with an enormous needle and a ball of twine. Because in those days, you know, I guess those prisoners weren't smart to, you know, <laughs> take all those things they give them, you know, to make burlap bags, because that's what they were making in prison were burlap bags. So there he is sitting with an enormous needle and a ball of twine sewing burlap bags. And his friend said, hello, I see you're sewing. And the prisoner said with a grim smile, no, <laughs> I'm reaping. Do you understand? Sewing, S-E-W-I-N-G, because he was sewing the bags together. But he saw in his mind what, what really was the problem. He's not sowing, S-O-W-I-N-G, but he's reaping. Reaping the consequences of his mistake, of his sin. And so Israel, and Judah in particular, were going to reap, they were going to reap the consequences of their, of their sin. It's sad, to, it's sad to talk about because every day we face, we face trials and we face troubles and we face sin, don't we? Why? Because Satan every day will aim all his guns at us. That's why we need to be vigilant in prayer, vigilant in the study of God's Word, vigilant in, in, in having the Christ-likeness in our lives so that the world will see that we are indeed different from them. You know, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. 
The world has a, has a language of its own. Let's not let that be our language. We can be among them with a pure language, with a good language, with a good tongue. And realize this, if we're struggling with the things that we say, you know, well, I, I say too many bad words. Well, you know what? Give it to the Lord. Cut your tongue off and give it to Jesus. And he'll give you a new one. He'll give you a new one. Renewed mind, you see. As Christians, we need to have renewed minds. If we renew our minds, it renews everything that we do through that mind and through the heart. Our language, our actions. We live in a very, we live in a very um, temptation-filled world. So we need our eyes to be guarded too. We need to guard our eyes. Because we got our eyes and it's... The, they're the windows to our minds and our hearts. We need to guard them. A lot of junk out there, folks. And even when we think it's something, you know, not so bad, it jumps at you. Got to be ready. Got to be ready. Let's go on. Verse 14 through 17 is really the last part of this chapter. And it's our third part of the, the last passage we're looking at. Thus says the Lord... Against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out of the house of Judah from among them. And then it shall be after I have plucked them out that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his, to his heritage and everyone to his land. And it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives as they taught my people to swear to, uh, by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. You see, the third and the last picture given in this chapter is that of evil neighbors. This more than likely refers to the neighboring nations such as Egypt, Syria, Moab, Edom, and Ammon, and a couple of others who had attacked Judah in the past and would also be punished by Babylon. Because Babylon wasn't just coming to Judah. Judah was the main target. But Babylon was having, you know, to take control of all of the, you know, they were going to be the world power. So to, take the, to be the world power, you, you, you know, you, you sweep up everybody. So you understand that, you know. Egypt tried to rise up against them, you know, it didn't work. So, anyway, so the, just, the, just think about the, the, uh, uh, the compassing of, 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 of that judgment of Babylon. Because some of them also will be taken captive, some of the, those in Egypt and Syria and Moab and all of those. So this passage also anticipates something. It anticipates chapters 46 to 51. Those are the last chapters of the book of Jeremiah. And, and those are the prophecies against these nations. They contain the oracles and the prophecies against these Gentile nations. So this is kind of anticipating that. So these wicked nations who had seized Israel's inheritance, or who had touched, as it says, Israel's inheritance, would themselves be uprooted from their lands. And in contrast, the Lord would uproot the house of Judah from the Gentile nations where they had been scattered and would restore them to their land. So God is saying that. 
Yes, they will go into captivity. God will uproot them, bring them back into the land. That's a near fulfillment. But it's also a far fulfillment. Why? Because even today, God is uprooting His people out of all the nations where they are and bringing them back into the land of Israel. When you you consider Israel today, the the state of Israel, it it is a fulfillment of the prophecy given to us in God's word that he would once again establish his people. They're there already. They're not there yet with, 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 their, with their trust in God completely. And they don't have to be yet. That's why, they, that's why when Jesus comes, every eye will be filled with tears because they will see him whom they pierced. But you have to understand God is preparing these last days already. Israel, to me, and I know to many others and to many of you here, Israel is the key to understanding the return of Jesus Christ, to understanding the, you know, the consummation of all the ages. Nothing can happen. And, and, and I don't understand. How, we were talking about this this morning in, in, a, in our devotional here at the church, in the staff about how uh, some, some people have read that, that about 90% of, of the evangelical church uh, doesn't consider Israel to be significant in Bible prophecy. I'm thinking, what are they reading? If they'll just open the Bible. Well, see, the problem is that they've been told, well, Israel really, you know, the church has now become, you know, the, the ones who inherited all the good blessings of Israel. So now their minds are, and their eyes are off, off of the people of God. And, 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 you know, from the very beginning, God has not stopped His promises toward His people. When we read the book of Daniel, we realize that in Daniel, there's, there's still seven years that He's going to deal with the people of Israel. Those days are yet to come. Those are the days that we are going to call the tribulation period. That's yet to come, but it's almost here. We're, getting, we're seeing everything fall into place. And I tell you this, if that's happening, it's about time we get serious with God. So Israel is a catalyst, I believe, to get people to get serious with God. And even people in the church who don't know that Israel is really key to, the, to, to all of Bible prophecy. Okay, well, you know, for that, I can go on and on and on and on about that. It's just I can't understand it. You know, when you go to Israel, you begin to realize, folks, man, God was, was serious about His people. God is serious about His people. So, let's, let's, let's turn to Jeremiah 31. I'm, I'm just getting stirred up here and we're almost done. Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 9. Let's look at this. Because this is the point of rejoicing because of God uprooting His people from captivity. Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 9. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of the waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. 
I mean, this is a wonderful promise to the Israelites, for they knew they would eventually be set free from the Babylonian captivity and return to the promised land. But this is also a long-range prophecy about the day when Christ will return to set up the kingdom of God on earth. Now, God clearly says that He will have compassion and return every true believer to His inheritance in the promised land. Consider Jeremiah 48, verses 46 and 47. Because we're talking about the other nations now. We're talking about the other nations, as we just read at the end of, of chapter 12. Woe to you, O Moab! Now, the woe is the judgment. The people of Chemosh perish, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters captive. But notice verse 47. Yet I will bring the cap- the, uh, back the captives of Moab in the latter days. In the latter days, I will bring back the captives of Moab, says the Lord. But thus far it is the judgment of Moab. And then in chapter 49 of Jeremiah, verses 5 and 6, Speaking of the people of Ammon, it says, Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts, from all those who are around you. You shall be driven out, everyone headlong, and no one will gather those who wander off. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. He'll bring them back to their land. And though God will judge these Gentile nations, listen carefully, He will later have compassion on them and restore them to their own lands. And this will happen when Christ returns to establish His millennial kingdom on earth. Those nations that learn well the ways of God's people and swear by His name will be blessed and established. However, any nation that rebels will be destroyed. So, again, the compassion of God is to say, if you come and you turn back to Me and you take the ways of My people which will be now, see, coming not only to the God of Israel, but coming to the Messiah of Israel, being Jesus Christ, then you will be blessed in the Millennial Kingdom. And I, and I have to say that God today, in the midst of all of this turmoil that's taking place in the Middle East, Still, though there are, there are elements of, of, of demonic leadership and demonic hatred against Israel, and they have stirred up the, the majority of, of, of Muslims and Arabs uh, and uh, non-Arab uh, Muslims in the world against Israel and, and so on and so forth, God still loves these people especially the ones who have been duped into believing all of these things. And there are people who are, there are Muslims today who are going to be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to know what to tell them about Jesus. Some of you may have seen on Fox News this last weekend of a, of a, of a young man who, whose father is a leader in Hamas. And he got out, lives in the States today. He got out became a Christian. And he wants to take the the gospel of Jesus Christ to his own people in some way to tell them about the deception of of Islam. And there are many many Islamic people today and and there are are ministries to uh, Muslims today coming out of the church. 
that, that are touching a lot of people's lives. Why? Because God has compassion. God wants to see them come to him. Even, even the children of, of Ishmael, God would have compassion. And we need to love them. Their, 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 their religion has, has no root in love. But ours does. Our way of life, our belief, that's because Jesus Christ is love. And when he died on that cross, he died extending love to all the world. Not just to the Christian world, quote-unquote, or to the Jewish world, quote-unquote, but to Jew and Gentile. To Jew and Gentile. That's all the world, folks. Because there's nothing in between. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. But if you're a child of God, whether Jew or Gentile, you are His forever. If these neighbors come to trust and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, as they had formerly taught the people of Judah to trust in Baal, the Lord would indeed accept them. But if they would not respond to the Lord positively, the Lord promised to destroy these nations again. Consider Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, first of all, says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth, that is, over all the earth and all its nations. In that day it shall be the Lord is one, his name one. When you jump down to verse 16 of Zechariah 14, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to, the keep, uh, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. So this passage gives us a rare glimpse into the disappointment and the agony that evil causes God. The anguish or agony is especially sharp for him when, when his own people are responsible for it. But in these verses, the Lord expresses both love and hate for his people. And I'm speaking about the passage we just studied in Jeremiah. Because he expresses both love and hate for his people. Emotions that we usually consider mutually exclusive, at least for God. But it's been said that when the Lord opened himself up to his people in love, he also opened himself to the possibility of hurt. And that's why I say when, when we sin, it breaks God's heart. But then again, who would know that better than the Lord himself who knows the end from the beginning? Who would know it better than the God who sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ? He came unto his own. His own, his, his own did not receive him. But think about this in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. 
I know that in the, in the King James Version it says that he repented. But the writers, uh, the interpreters were, were wanting to get clear that, that idea that, you know, the only way we could understand what God was going through was not so much that he had made a mistake. It was that he was sorrowed or sorrowful because of sin. He sorrows when we sin, even though he knows we will before we do so. He still sorrows when we sin. It grieves God to the depth of his heart that because of his holiness, he has to judge and condemn man for his wickedness. That's, what's, that's what sorrows him the most, <clears throat> is that he has to judge and condemn man for his wickedness. When every intent of God's heart is to love his creation. Because you see, God is a God of life. Not the God of death. Everything we read about God is that God is the one that gives life. But when man sinned, death came into the picture. And God doesn't choose death for us. Man chooses death for himself. That is why we see in the scriptures, choose you this day whom you will serve. That's why we see in the book of Deuteronomy, it says choose life. Why? Because that's what God has given us. So if hell was, was created for the devil and his angels, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Man does it himself. Out of pure, dis, out of pure disobedience and rebellion. But I leave you with the words of, of, of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Remember, your homework is Hebrews 11, but Hebrews 12. So I got you close enough so you can put your bookmark there so you can read tonight. But Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay, every, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and notice, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The starting line and ending line of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. My encouragement to you is look to Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now look at verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider him who endured hostility from sinners against, against himself. He endured hostility for us. He endured it for us. You see, that's how much Jesus loves you. And loves his creation. So he loves Judah. And while he stands against the enemies of his people, yet even to them he says, but if you will turn from your wicked ways, I will receive you too. Why? Because we were all created in the image of God. And all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
So all need a Savior. And Jesus died for all. Not all will accept. Not all will believe. But he died for all. Let's pray.